Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. We are pleased to have the artist Ryan Brown with us today, an award-winning painter whose figurative and landscape art has won major awards and been featured in Fine Art Connoisseur, Plain Air Collector, and Southwest Art Magazines. Born and raised in Salt Lake City, Brown studied illustration at BYU Museum of Art and simultaneously worked privately with the artist William Whitaker. Brown continued to hone his skills by attending the Florence Academy of Art in Italy, where he received his first taste of academic training. He organized an intense and concise training program at the Florence Academy, which provided Brown with what he considers the beginning of his understanding of the craft of art. Brown has applied this understanding to a new school for artists, the Masters Academy of Art, based in Springville and founded by Brown. We'll talk with Brown about his work, his philosophy, and the new academy. Welcome, Ryan Brown. Thank you. You've chosen for us to discuss today a painting that I think will be familiar to many members of the church. It's one of the most reproduced works of art in the church today. It's the Pool of Bethesda by the Danish artist Carl Bloch. So tell us why, and, and I, gotta, I, I gotta start by saying that I knew you were coming up to Salt Lake today and I just kind of pulled you into this discussion. So we're doing this on the fly with less preparation than usual. But knowing the level that you play at, you, uh, Ryan, I'm not worried about that. And I know that you chose this because this is a painting you're very familiar with. There's specifically, you told me, a reason why you chose it. Yeah. I'm, well, I had very little time to <laughs> make a decision, but uh, I, I recently got a, a large commission to paint the Pool of Bethesda. But um the, the aftermath of Bethesda, the, the familiar story is that he healed um, the guy who had been infirm for 38 years, and he told yes. him to pick up his bed and walk. Um, so the, the part of the narrative that I'm uh, going to be painting is the moments after that, as he's walking away, as everybody uh, becomes aware that, that a miracle has just happened. Um, uh, and, and so the narrative that I'm pursuing is maybe a little bit... Um, of my own invention, um, my thoughts on where that where that story would go after the actual event that that's um, told about in the Bible. So, I know we have to be careful whenever we talk about commissions about revealing too much information, and things can change in commissions. But maybe there are some things you could answer about it. Okay. So, for instance, this is an enormous painting in the first place, the Pool of Bethesda. Mm -hmm. Painted by Carl Block in the, I think, was it the 1860s, I believe it was painted? Or was it as late right as Right around there, yeah. And, and um, it was purchased by a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and donated to the church in 2002. It's been hanging in the BYU Museum of Art where people can see it today. And it's big. Yeah. What, wh how big is it exactly? It is... Roughly 80 by 102. 80 inches by 102 inches. And 
your job is not to copy that exactly. It was. The first was conversation it. was, was um, I was in L.A. and I got a call at my hotel and um, they, they said we're thinking about um, having you do a, a copy of the Carl Block. They love the painting. They love the narrative. Um, and as we discussed it further, uh, it just grew into where both I and the uh, person who commissioned it wanted to go in a totally original direction. So, so your painting, let's say fast forward to it being finished, is it meant to hang in the same environment as, as the, uh, sorry, <laughs> do it on the fly and you forget to check everything because maybe that was the person who commissioned it right there. No, yeah, right. it wasn't <laughs> the, um, it's, is, is it meant to hang next to a Carl Block painting or a copy of one? No. Um, so it's going to stand. It's going to be on, in. The, it's it's going to be in the home. Um, and uh, okay. but but the idea, part of the idea was uh, when we were discussing it originally was if it were to be donated later, um, would it be possible to hang next to the Carl Block Pool of Bethesda? Uh, would it be original enough to do that? And and I think that's that was kind of one of the decisions. Uh, discerning factors does this mean you get to paint in your own particular style or is there some aspect of you having to ape his style well i hope it means i can paint in my style because i don't really know how i paint i don't know that i can copy a style yeah. or paint particularly in my own style because i don't really know how i do that i i i'm trying to achieve certain visual effects of form and space and weight um color harmonies but i don't i don't know that i don't know what my paintings look like enough to have a style this is a really fascinating question something i've always wondered about it's something that art historians talk a lot about the anxiety of influence is this is is a general term for it yeah and it's the idea that there there are expectations put on you as an artist whether it's somebody saying i have a gallery and um, I really like your paintings, but can you turn all of the women into cowgirls and all of the men into cowboys? And what sells really well are Remington. So could you paint them to look a little bit more like Remington? Right. And it's th there's this expectation that, that that person knows what's going to sell and you want to sell. And so you have to come up with a certain formula to do it. I can imagine that this... Mike and I love that you said no I don't really know how I paint <laughs> that's a great great honest answer because it's almost like like uh, asking someone to sing in another person's style it's yeah. you know I, I sing how I sing and that's how I sing and you hope that the person comes to you asking for the commission chose you because they know right they know that did the person who commissioned you by the way know you? yeah yeah they uh, yeah I think they came to me particularly uh, for me they said they wanted um they said they wanted something on the level of carl block and i told them very early on um not your guy probably but there is no guy out there if you were to f try and find somebody that can paint that well i don't think there's anybody you can go to but i think there's people that are on the path and mm -hmm. and one of the things that's missing in the in this whole development of master works is the patronage because I think there are a lot of um, great craftsmen out there that can can do these things, but they just don't have the support to spend the time doing them. So this is the great miracle for me is I would love to do only one or two paintings a year. Um, but it uh, in order to do that, you have to 
pay for your living, right? So if you've got uh, kids, you got a family. Yeah, you a gotta, lot of artists aren't able to take the time to put into doing very significant grand pieces because the patronage isn't there as much as it used to be. Uh, that's I think that was a big pivotal changing point in the late 19th century, the way um, painting went, the direction painting went. Um, was the patronage started to uh, shift? It, yeah, if you were if you were Karl Block in the nineteenth century and you had the patronage of the king, the Danish king, you had an enormous amount of le of leeway to right. work on things, and and a, and a time scale that was different. You basically lived on a stipend that was given you. You don't have that luxury today. It yeah. also strikes me that. This question of Karl Block as a member of, of, of the pantheon of Mormon artists is something that I don't know if we'll ever fully get to the bottom of. We had Herman Dutoy, a, a, a scholar and a former curator or, or director of education at BYU Museum of Art who helped organize the Sacred Gift Show that took place there. And I asked him, how did Karl Block become a member of our canon? And he said, you know, I'm not entirely sure. And I think that's the answer a lot of people have. The answer is that, the, and, and the more I look into it, is that in the 1960s, as we developed print magazine culture within the church, that Karl Block was, along with Heinrich Hoffman, were a couple of artists that somehow, and I don't know the exact day or decision, it, um, were, were pulled in and used for illustrations within church magazines. And, and they've stayed there ever since. There are more Karl Block and Heinrich Hoffman reproductions in the church. I would probably guess this according to more than one person that, uh, than uh, all other artists combined. And there are consequences to that. And one of the consequences is that you as an artist today, when you're asked to do a commission of a religious work of art, the reference of the patron and what the patron knows is Karl Block. Yeah. And I... It is what it is, but is, is it is it a curse? Is it a blessing? Is it? Do, do you mind? What goes through your head when I when I boil it down to that kind of map? I guess. I, I agree. Um, um, the I, I've done two uh, paintings of Christ on my own um, for what I was hoping would be for the temples, um, and what I learned very very quickly was nobody agrees on what Christ looked like or how he should be dressed or how long his beard should be or if he should be frail or big or whatever. So you've, you're, you're, as an artist, you're dealing with the accepted uh, symbols of Christ. You have to find a way to uh, be true to your own concept of Christ while fitting into the well-established well parameters of the symbol that we have today right. and and that is has a range it's not just Karl Block or Heinrich Hoffman it's 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 the Deseret book artists as well that that give us a, a sort of conception of of the expectation of Christ yeah. so um, I found that coming at it as a, an artist nobody's heard of that trying to create my own vision of Christ was met with um, just really not a lot of um, response uh, um, hmm. people were very bland about it they um, and so so I went away from it for a while it was it was totally 
um, it would be in bad a bad decision for me to have continued to pursue it, pursue it, um, because there was absolutely no outlet for it, um, even um, in the church, uh, unless unless I was a little bit more rigorously tied to the accepted forms of Christ. But hmm. the the good thing about Karl Bloch, um, to me, is I, I don't necessarily think he was the best painter of the 19th century, but I do think he fit into a a tradition of naturalist painting that, um, in in my opinion, has a greater ability to speak on a human level to more people. Uh, uh, when you get back to, say, Tiepolo or, I mean, Titian did really great work too. Velasquez did really great work. But a lot of the religious paintings are maybe a little bit too grandiose or... or um, I think even Caravaggio was maybe a little bit over dramatic. It's hard to, um, it's hard to, especially as a Mormon culture that's so uh, conservative in the way they depict a narrative, uh, a biblical narrative. Uh, I think it's hard to um, show those scenes from those painters because although we're touched by them on a human level, it, it's it's not necessarily as accessible. Uh, or recognizable to to um, our daily existence, uh, and I think the naturalists were able to really tie in better than I- any other movement in history to that daily existent mentality, the daily existence of of how we respond to the imagery that they were creating. And I think Karl Bloch did that with his biblical narratives maybe better than a lot of the others. One of the things that just the path that you took us on just now makes me want to makes me want to explore and ask you is about your personal journey. You you're like me, native of Utah, right? Born and raised in Salt Lake City. You went to BYU until your senior year. Then you study with William Whitaker, Bill Mm -hmm. Whitaker, for those who, who know him well, one of the most accomplished figurative artists we have in the in the area. And and uh very highly regarded and then you make the decision go to florence yeah to study why did you go to florence oh gosh it was really naive in the beginning i knew i needed more um than what i got at the university how did you know that i wasn't very good and i i didn't want to accept that that was my fault i guess (laughs) um I mean, there was a part of me that thought maybe I just not cut out for this. Maybe I, I just don't have it in me. Um, but I wanted to do it more than I felt that. Do you know what I'm saying? That the the desire to continue and get better and my stubbornness and maybe my ego was saying, I can if if it's something to do, I can figure this out. I, I, this is not. I'm, I'm never going to be. There's not something I can't do. Right. Um, right. So, and I want to do this. I was, I'm really interested in drawing and painting. So, so the passion was still there, even though you felt like your skills were just not. Yeah. And at the time, did you, did you blame the system at the time? Did you feel like the system was unfairly? I, I don't think I knew enough to blame the system. I, I think I, um, you know, you go to a university or any other education and, and you have this blind faith that the people are going to give you what you need, that you're going to develop the skills. You go to hire a system of higher education to be prepared to be professional. Yeah. And, um, and so everything that you're taught, uh, all of the people that are teaching you, you walk into the class with a, um, a blind trust. And if you don't develop the skills, 
then it's your fault. You didn't right. work hard enough or you're not uh, cut out for it or whatever. Um, there's that sentiment that you failed, not the system. And so I probably believed that to a point. Um, when did Florence come up in your ideas a solution to that I problem? I had a friend that went there um, for a, a summer program and told me about it. And I looked it up online and, uh, you know, Internet wasn't very sophisticated then. So they had very limited stuff. And I was blind. I, I think that's the problem most art students have is there's a, a literal blindness that exists. You don't just wake up knowing how to see uh, and assess things artistically. You you have to learn that skill. And so um, I, did, I don't know that I necessarily saw the difference um, in the quality between the student work coming out of Florence and the student work coming out of uh, BYU. But when I got there, uh, and was in it, um, I, uh, it be, I became very aware very, very quickly uh, of what the difference was, how an organized system of learning was beneficial, that there, that there even was a difference between uh, what, what I had experienced and, and an organized system. So describe for us what you would get there at the Florence Academy. Let's say, you know, when you arrive, what, what, what did they offer? It's just drawing and painting, except you don't get to painting until you graduate through drawing. So it was, we started with copy drawings from the Charles Barg drawing course, came out in 1867 in, mm -hmm. in Paris. And uh, we spent the mornings, uh, three hours in the morning doing copy drawings, and then three hours in the afternoon uh, on the model in the figure room. Um, two hours, two nights a week on the model. We had anatomy lectures on Monday nights. We had our history lectures on Friday nights. Um, but it was it was an immediate shift, and I'll tell I'll tell you just a brief story, and you can edit this out if because I don't know if that I want this I on air, <laughs> but but uh, the the story that the the big turning point where I started to realize there was a difference was I, I had uh, drawings by two specific drawing instructors at BYU that everybody touted as the gods of figure drawing and I believed the same thing I, I was in their classes several times and and had the highest respect for their work um, so when I went to Florence Academy I thought I was pretty hot stuff because I had graduated BYU which was told to me was this great university and I was pretty good there so I thought if I'm pretty good at a really great university I must be pretty awesome so these guys at Florence Academy are probably going to want me to start teaching here in about a month because I'm so good already. This was how naive I was. This is true. This is I, it, I look back and, and, and cringe with embarrassment, but this is the reality of my thinking. Um, when I got there, uh, it was there was a, a real pivotal moment that came in two days in where I left. I, I, got, I got these critiques that I didn't like and I because uh, they kept telling me to change these things and start over and whatever. Uh, and I told my wife, I went home, I told my wife, we're leaving. Or I'm not staying here, this is stupid. And then in my mind, I thought, what do they want it, perfect? And the, when, the, when those words ran through my mind, it was an epiphany that yes, they do. And do I then want to pursue that? Because number one, I need to know if it's, if it's possible. So I went around to the different studios and I just saw perfect drawing after perfect drawing after perfect drawing. Now knowing that it was possible, I needed to know if I could, if I wanted to do it. Because I knew if I said, yes, I want to do it, I was, that was going to be my whole life. I was going to have to dedicate everything to this more than I had anything else ever previously. Um, 
If I said no to that, I knew that I'd still be happy making art because you can be happy making mediocre things. But if but but then my ego kicks in and says, if it's if I knew the rest of my life, am I going to live with the reality that I knew that greatness was possible and I didn't pursue it? And that's when I decide I can't not try to, to be my absolute best. So. Um, but I, but I still had this ego from BYU, right, that that was saying, but but I still am a college graduate. So I still wanted the respect of all the other students and maybe some of the teachers. So I wrote um, my professors and I asked them to send me these drawings, email me these drawings um, so that I could show that them. Were my, theirs? That were They're... theirs and, and that I had looked at months before, that I was just held in the highest esteem. So that I could show them around and say, this is who I studied with and thereby maybe get a little bit more respect myself. Um, and they, so they sent them to me and I got them about three weeks into the academy. And this is this is where I want you to edit it out. But um, well, just I, keep keep the names. Yeah, keep I mean, names. yeah. Names. I was I was em embarrassed by them when I got them. They were the same drawings I remember standing in the hall and revering. But in three weeks, I had learned how to see so well, not perfectly, but I had made such an amazing um, yeah. uh, transition in my ability to see that all of the inaccuracies, all of the clunkiness of the drawings were now apparent to me where I didn't, I didn't see them before. And I didn't really develop, I hadn't in that time developed an, an immense amount uh, of greater drawing skills. It was my ability to see that had changed. There's this, there's this um, I think it was actually Ira Glass, who is one of the hosts of, of This American Life, and uh, he's done a number of other things, but that's what he's best known for. He said that you, when you start off down a path of a skill, the first thing you experience is a a heightening of your taste and your ability to see things. But it, and it also is incredibly frustrating because you see the gap between what you're able to do and what you like, and and the 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 rest that takes years to overcome is not the initial leap that you're describing of seeing the difference. It's the leap of closing the gap right. between what you want to produce and what you can produce. And one way of looking at it and uh, is, is to say that these professors were bad. But another way to look at it is that they got you so far. And this is how life is in general. Yeah. You were younger. You went to people who were specialists by comparison yeah. in, in, a, in a much narrower uh, uh, um, field of approach that demanded a different arsenal and, sk and skill level right. in that. And and so it was. They were stepping stone. Yeah, I, and I, I wouldn't felt even the same thing in my in my own education when I went to do my master's and my yeah. PhD. I felt embarrassed about where I'd just come from. Yeah, I think it's a fairly common experience. I, and I wouldn't even necessarily say that they were bad. I, I I'm because I have I still have hold them personally in high regard. Um, but the world that I was living in in terms of my reality it, what was good drawing what consisted of good drawing and what what um what my conception of good drawing was was shattered the the embarrassment was not of them personally the embarrassment of was what i used to think was good and and then uh having the clouds lifted from my eyes and being able to see uh 
just in terms of quality, uh, proportion, uh, gesture, line quality, I feel like um, that changed so dramatically in, in a short span of three weeks that uh, it was it was world shattering. Uh, I had no idea that I had changed that much. And it wasn't a stylus of change. The, you don't go to the Florence Academy or another academy and have them say, this is really good and this is really bad and cr criticize and feed you uh, ideas about good and bad art. It's strictly just you walk in the door and you start drawing what's in front of you. And that changes the way you see things. This, this begs a larger question that isn't just about art, but it's about culture in general, which is I think all of us have experienced it on some level. We are born in the church. We're born with a certain art culture around us or just general culture. We go out and experience a culture that you were in Florence, right? You're in Florence. You're at the cradle of the Renaissance. Right. You're looking at Da Vinci, Bronzino, Andrea del Sarto, Raphael, Michelangelo, Giambologna. You're looking at all of these. I mean, these, these are the heroes that... That, that fomented the, the Renaissance, right? right, And you, by comparison and by contrast, are coming from a very young culture that worships Karl Bloch and Heinrich Hoffmann, who were not the center of the 19th century art world. Right. And you're at a school where, as a four-year degree program, in addition to producing artists, like you, they're also producing people who are working in illustration and video game production and and all kind. I mean, it's 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 almost as if um, I think all of us. I know I've experienced this before. Will I, I joke with people sometimes that doctrinally I'm Mormon, but aesthetically I'm Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> and and I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. That's a discussion for another time. But it's the concept that occasionally I'll encounter this level of depth, which feels by degrees different. Yeah. And it makes me want to, at first, it's like there are different levels. At first, maybe I feel a little bit of embarrassment. And sometimes there's this idea of negation. Then there's this kind of negotiation in my mind of, oh, I can, I can maintain my foothold in this culture and bring what's good from this culture back to it. Right. From, from this environment. Right. And here you are, you're in Utah You've come back from Florence, which you've gone to more than once, and you continue to travel, which we'll talk about. You just came back from Paris, one of your many trips that you've taken to Europe for master studies and for your own further development. And you come back here. Have you reconciled it entirely in your mind, this idea of you've experienced, you mentioned even at the beginning as naturalists, you've experienced Titian, Velasquez, the great naturalists who we don't have a reference for necessarily in the culture. Our reference is Karl Bloch. Yeah. Well, well, You've that chosen goes back to come back though. That goes back to, I think the question you asked earlier, which is, um, how do, how do we feel about, um, the, the borrowing from history, the, that lineage or, or the need to, in, in this case, um, the recognition of Karl Bloch and Heinrich Hoffman. And if you get a commission, it, it has to be somewhat, uh, uh, regurgitated form of, of those artists. But, but to me, um, I, I don't know that there's ever been a master in history that was, uh, that, that had was self-developed that didn't lean on the masters of the past. I think 
um, was it Edison that said, if I have seen further, um, it is only because I've sta- stood on the shoulder of giants, something Newton. like that? Newton. Okay. So, so I think that's true of everyone. Uh, if we hope to achieve something great, we could try to reinvent everything on our own, 2,500 years of the evolution of art, or we can stand on the shoulders of 2,500 ev- uh, years of evolution of art and maybe go a little further. So I think looking back at history and leaning on Titian and Tiepolo and uh, Del Sarto and all of those, Velasquez and Michelangelo, all of, all of those past masters allows us to go a little bit further with our own conceptions uh, of what we would do um, artistically. So I think it's really important to do that and, and not uh, having those experiences is incredibly limiting. Uh, even with the ease at which we can access information today, there's nothing like standing in the Sistine Chapel. Um, there's nothing like, I was just in, in the Louvre and the Orsay and the Petit Palais, there's nothing like standing in front of those works and reverse engineering how they did it and really understanding, not, not just from a technical standpoint, but from an aesthetic standpoint, why does this matter? Why is the Louvre the most visited museum on the planet? It's not just good marketing. It's, there's something that we respond to in terms of uh, human achievement that makes us need to have those experiences in front of those great works of art. You know, this is controversial to some people because it's this notion that, and I've had this conversation, we'll end with a question, and the question is essentially, we're not going to do it right now, but it, it, the, the question is, um, President Spencer W. Kimball said that we'll have a Mormon Michelangelo at one point, and the moment you were mentioned the word Michelangelo, there's a group that there's there's a there's a, a a group of people who kind of cringe at the idea of a standard, right? Yeah. Of a canon, right? Because they don't feel like it's it's like you're describing it's what people are capable of. They actually feel like that is something that's holding us back. What do you what do you say to that? I live in my own world as everybody does. And and my world is a meritocracy. I want things to be a meritocracy. So that's that's the filter with which I view things. I'm a big sports fan and you don't make it to the NBA if you're if you play basketball like I do. <laughs> and I and I'm not bad. But I'm not Division One worthy, and I'm certainly not NBA worthy. But I have fun playing church ball, right? Yeah. I'm a church ball all-star. But that's as far as my life goes. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. And I don't expect to be paid more than LeBron James. Although that's what I see happening in the art world. Mm-hmm. is uh, um, uh, If I had a good hype man, I could get $30 million a year, and LeBron James would be playing uh, uh, church ball. And he'd be really good at it, but nobody would care. So when you do create a set of standards and you do set, a, you create a canon of people to look at, it's one thing for yourself, which I know is a lifelong journey to match up to those accomplishments and to close the gap between what you see and what you can do. But on top of that, you have a center for academic study and naturalism that is in Springville. You just had a grand reopening yep. of We've it. We renamed it the Master's Academy of Art. Master's Academy of Art. I'm yep. glad you told me that. Yeah. The Master's Academy of Art in Springville is something that is is a real labor of love. It's something that I think 
at least in other discussions that I've had with you, seems like it's going to be a lifelong pursuit. Yeah. Is is this is this part of the work and the consequences of Florence? Is that you go to Florence, you see another level of play, you get exposed to all of these things, you come back and you push the the goal mark a little farther by by with another generation? Yeah, I think there's two there's two answers to that. My first inclination to teach um, was just the realization that that the typical art educational system is either non-existent or extremely chaotic, and it just doesn't have to be that way. Um, this information, the development of these skills, is so accessible to everybody. It's like learning a, a language. You can do it, um, and anybody that wants to draw well can draw well in an, if they go through a progression and organized system of, of education. So my realization that you know my own education in the university was so chaotic and um, disorganized was just made me compelled. I had this great blessing of having this experience and learning in this uh, system that just worked for everybody there. Why would why I have to pass it on? I have to pass it on. It's just too easy to not give away. Uh, and so that was my first inclination to to teach. The second is that when you when you are in a system where you're developing towards excellence, excellence is the standard. The reason we look at Michelangelo and Titian and um, anyone else you want to name that are past masters, the reason we look at them is because collectively we agree they did it better than anyone else and and they set a standard of excellence that we strive to achieve ourselves um, and that and, and so coming back holding those standards really really high has caused a little bit of problems for me um, in Utah because the that context doesn't necessarily exist for most people here that haven't gone out and gone to the Met several times and Philadelphia Museum and the Getty and and the Louvre and the the Orsay and and the Prado um, it, when you experience those great works it changes you uh, dramatically um, especially as an artist it, it shows you a, a world you may not have been aware of in that way before to that depth have you seen other artists experience this where they've gone? I just saw, I, yeah, I just saw it. I, I was uh, I was with Casey Childs in Paris last week. Himself it, a very accomplished yeah, award-winning artist. really good artist. And he'd never, but he'd never been to Europe. And um, and we had a lot of conversations there about it, uh, about this this topic. Um, and just how dramatically it, it changes your perception, um, how it affects you, and how it should affect you. We talk, as an art historian, you... You know, you say, well, uh, um, you know, he won the Prix de Rome and then he went down to Rome and it changed him. And then he started doing this work. He was influenced by this and he started doing this. And that's when the work of this one artist that we really revere really started to take shape was after this pivotal and influential moment, uh, oftentimes. And, and I think everybody has to have that. Let's do that with Carl Block really fast. This is the kind yeah. of thing that, that we hear all the time about about artists with um, with with uh, who, who have been adopted in church culture, in visual culture, which is the you know, title of this podcast. Here we've got 
um, Karl Bloch, the most reproduced artist in the church. He's Danish. Do we talk about him being Lutheran? Not necessarily. It doesn't yeah. matter if he's Lutheran. Maybe. Maybe he would have painted differently had he been a Calvinist or, or Episcopalian. But he um, goes to... He, he studies at the academy in Copenhagen, which was a school that came out of a long tradition that went through neoclassicism with Torvaldsen and then moved away from it into Romanticism. It was very stylized. Wins the Prix de Rome. Goes to Rome. Piece that he does as a graduation piece is someone that, something that no one in the church has ever seen. I've never heard them talk about his work, Prometheus Bound, yeah. a classically influenced work of art that um, was based on a work that I think he had seen by Ribera in Rome. Then he comes back, and he, what's in vogue in Paris is naturalism. Yeah. Now, when we talk about Karl Bloch, we often use the word he was inspired. But he's arguably, you, you and he share a lot in common. You both came from a fairly provincial area. I'm here from here too. Yeah. He goes to Rome to study after having some education, a very good education, what he thought was the best. I can't imagine what he felt like showing up on the Spanish steps at the foot of the, of the, of the, uh, <laughs> the Medici palace that's now the French Academy and been there at the same time as Overbeck, as Frederick Layton, as a lot of these other artists who were there, he must have felt incredibly small. Yeah. And then he, you know, he, but, but he, he survived it. And he goes back and he paints works that, that by, by his nation's standards and, you know, by we are now adopted by us have yeah. lived a much larger life than, than most artists. He, I'm sure he went through those those changes. He must have been very provincial. Yeah. I don't know what standards he was held to by his audience, though. And that's one of the questions that your commission that we started off this conversation with brings up is if you do have standards and the, you have certain standards after having gone out and come back, just like Karl Bloch did. Was Karl Bloch thinking about Leighton? Was he thinking about these other artists? You have a much larger universe than just Utah. Yeah, well, I mean... What do you, who do you think about? Who do you compare yourself to? If Karl Bloch was there at the same time as Leighton, I guarantee Leighton felt small too. Yeah. Uh, because you're in Rome, and you're, you're looking at... There's a reason why everybody went to Rome. Yeah. Uh, there was a reason why people still go to Rome. Uh, there is such a rich tradition and heritage that we're all trying to adopt ourselves into. So... It, when I look back at the 19th century, there was a there was a, a heritage of art, uh, the understanding of the depth of art, the creation of works of art that existed culturally that does not exist today. You think so, it's gone? I, I think it's completely gone. Yeah, uh, and we're trying to reestablish it to a degree, but but you know, changing culture is no easy thing, uh, especially. Uh, the culture that we have today, which is the magazine pop culture, back to something that's meaningful and rich. and uh, It doesn't necessarily help that we even take great paintings like a large altarpiece and reduce it to a magazine right, right. size. Well, I, think, I think it's good to have the reproductions um, because it reaches a mass audience, but, uh, but it, creating experience um, for people and uh, an environment where they want to take time to have those experiences is the, that's the culture that, that we need to get back to. 
um, and, and creating things worthy of that time to, to contemplate and, and think about these things and experience these things. Um, it's all part of it. So it was a big, big conversation we could have It is. Later. It's something that you and I as friends have had for a while. Yeah. It's something that I think, um, I think a lot of people are thinking about. And we're almost at the end of, of, of our time in the conversation. And I do feel, I mean, we've been ending with this question uh, about the 50th anniversary of the Gospel Vision of the Arts. But before I ask it, I think that you and I, have, if this is kind of a neat way to, to tie together what we've been talking about in a way. And that's that there's, the expectations were set very high in, when President Kimball got up 50 years ago this September and said, one day we will have our Shakespeare. We will have our Michelangelo. We will have our you know, fill in the blank, yeah. right? We will have, and and by that he goes on to say, someone who will express our highest values mm -hmm. in art. It doesn't necessarily mean that it'll look like Michelangelo, right? But it'll be something you've been talking about this whole time at a standard that is exceptionally high, worthy of our of our art, and that that's an ecosystem he's talking about. Yeah, he's not just talking about Michelangelo. Right. He's talking about Medici. Right. That Medici. was the, the very first conversation you and I had. I don't know if you remember. It was back in 2005. I don't remember. You came up to the studio I was sharing with Gary Price. And you were th talking at that point about maybe taking some drawing classes. Do you remember? Vaguely. Vaguely. Yes. Okay. So you brought this up and said, uh, and I'd had this conversation several times before with other people, but you said uh, uh, this thing about the Mormon Michelangelo. And I said, it's not the Michelangelo's we're missing. It's the Medici's. Because genius exists, but only in its dormant state without somebody to water the seed. And the watering of the seed is done by patronage. Uh, you can't have Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel or the David without the patronage behind it. He'd, he would have been like the best shoemaker in town if, if somebody didn't step up and allow him the time to make those masterworks, to, to share the vision of that and put the faith in him to actually see that happen. So do you think that today, it, well, I would think you would answer and tell me if I'm wrong in the negative, we haven't reached the Michelangelo stage yet that President Kimball talked about, have we? No, I don't think we've reached the depth or sophistication um, artistically as that. Uh, I think we're still, but I think there's people on the path towards it. I think there's people that um, have the, innate ability to do it but again again i think it's it's a matter of time and um investment so so the artist has to be willing to invest the time and the patron has to be willing to invest the money to allow him to invest the time so for so, you it's 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 there's a synergy it's that we're yeah. not just talking about are the michelangelo's there it's are the medici there too Right. And, and that was one of the very first things I told the person who commissioned me in this work was I'm not I'm not qualified right now to make that work, uh, the work that you're wanting the, at the level you're wanting it at. The first six months of this, I'm going to spend doing master copies so that I can solve problems I haven't yet solved before so that I can understand how they approached these particular problems in paint and how I can handle those same things at, at that level. The masters weren't writing Da Vinci codes on, on uh, canvas. They were putting solutions down. And all we have to do as artists is have the ability to read them. 
Because if we can, then we can take those same solutions and apply them to our own work. Not Again, not in a copying way. I'm not trying to be Michelangelo. I'm not trying to recreate the 19th century. I, I can't change the hand with which I paint with. So um, I'm not going to be a copyist because I couldn't be. Uh, I couldn't be because I'm not them. I'm sure that makes sense. Um, but how they solved problems and the sophisticated manner with which they solve problems, I can take those solutions and apply them to my own work. But I have to have the time to do that, which means I have to go back and make master copy after master copy after master copy in order to, to understand the things I need to in order to solve the problems I'm inevitably going to have on this original work. Boy, this, this standard that you hold yourself to is a really double-edged sword, isn't it? Because on one hand, it's reachable. Yeah. Your goals, because you, you, it seems like a fundamental belief you have is this is doable. Yeah. Right. I can do this. If I can see it, I can do it. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's, I'm not there yet. I'm going to have to do some master copies. I got some problems I need to solve. Yeah. So it, it is very merit. It is a meritocracy that you're talking about. Yeah. And, that, and there's something very comforting in that, but it's also, it's, it's daunting. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, it's it's daunting in a way that that is achievable. It's 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 a you're you're at the base of the mountain and there's still a long ways to go, but you you see the path on the map. You know it's it's you have the equipment and you know you can do it. You just have to stand up and go. And and the the patronage. This is what I told the guy who who um, commissioned it. This is the dream. For most of my friends, this is the dream. They, to do that commission and to, to be given the time to do it. Uh, yeah, and, and subject matter aside, um, it's it you know whatever it is, you want to have the time to do great, lasting works. Um, and I think a lot of artists feel the reality of the pinch, uh, uh, the monetary pinch, that um, it. It forces you to do maybe smaller works. It forces you into uh, what you choose as subject matter. It forces you into what galleries you work with, uh, timelines in terms of shows and uh, exhibitions, uh, uh, competitions. There's so many outside determining factors that, that go into what uh, most artists, most of my friends, and including me, uh, have to um, use to make the determination on how they spend their day. Right. I need to be responsible today. How am I going to what am I going to do? What am I going to work on? If you take all those factors out and say, um, what, are, what do you really want to make? What are the what are the lasting works that are going to matter? Uh, if you spend your time on anything, wouldn't it, why wouldn't you spend it on something that really has to be in existence? Well, that's a hard question to ask yourself as an artist, because it's it's totally fiscally irresponsible. But when you have a patron that steps up and says, I share your grand vision, not only that, but I have faith that you have the requisite skills to to live up to this grand vision, I'm going to support that. Um, that's special. That's and, and that's that's when you get that's when you get the Sistine Chapel. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it is not alone. It's not one or the other. It, it, it's it's a real connection between the two and and i feel very very lucky to to be pursuing it at this point i am i i we've known each other a while um even longer than i remember if you remember that conversation yeah. Yeah. in 2005 i and and it I, i'm i'm really it's amazing to see how dedicated you've been over these years 
singularly dedicated to a level of excellence in pursuing it. I'm glad that I caught you at this particular moment. I'm sorry for all the beeps and 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 zings that have been going on throughout the discussion. I guess that's what happens when I pull you in kind of last minute and say, let's while I've got you, let's have a conversation. But I'm glad we did because it also sounds like this is a conversation that more artists and more people like me and I think ordinary people need to hear about. These are you're working on a commission right now that tells the story of where we are in LDS art, in my opinion. Yeah. It's it's a microcosm of the larger environment. Well, we're at, we're out of time. I'm so grateful you came. Thank yeah. you for letting me pull you in. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank the artist Ryan Brown for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the work we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information on Ryan Brown's paintings and about the Master's Academy of Art. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.